Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome to this episode of Live with C-Sharp, the legendary bassist from Detroit, Michigan, Mr. Ralph Armstrong. Welcome to the show, Ralph. Thank you, Cecilia. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you for spending some time with me on on Live with C-Sharp. So, can you talk about how you got your start in music and was the bass your first instrument? Oh, that's wonderful. That's such an intellectual question. It is, uh, and that's that's good because you're taking me back to the roots. My father was a Tennessee violinist and a Tennessee intellectual from Campbell County. He played every string instrument you could think of, violin, mandolin, bass, cello, and he spoke uh, different languages, about 13 different languages. And when I was a kid, I would hear my father play the uh, violin, and he tried to teach me the violin, but I didn't like the violin because I could never get a sound out of it. It was too squeaky with the bow. So one uh, Sunday afternoon, we went to my uncle's place. His name is Lee Crockett, L.C. Armstrong, and he played this golden K-bass violin, and the sound just blew me away. And I told my father, I said, Daddy, I want to play the bass. I want to be like Uncle L.C. I don't want to play that violin no more. I hate it. And finally, my, I almost pulled my daddy's pants off him. All right, doggone it, boy. Dang, never leave me alone. And then finally, he may actually made me a bass at the age of seven. And he made it out of some uh, pine wood. It had a round hole in it. And he found this old German neck somewhere. I don't know where he got the neck from. It was old. The neck was probably at least 100 years old back then in the 60s. So that's how I first started playing the bass. Now, the first person I ever worked with in my life who was not a relative, and my Aunt Robbie played the guitar, all the Armstrongs played music, every one of them played an instrument. But anyway, the first person I ever played with in my life at the age of 12 was Carolyn Franklin. I, I contribute her as uh, discovering me because I met her at a rec center up on Harper. And this is Aretha Franklin's sister. And uh, she said, why don't you come play with me? She saw something that I mean, I had a Sears amplifier. And I would go by Big Mama's house over there on uh, Sorrento, and the little den that had a ball with a little ball and piano uh, upright. And I would come every Saturday and play with her. She would pick me up. And that's how I got my first break as playing, you know, with uh, somebody that knew music. And we would play and write songs and you know, that was just a wonderful time in my life. But I went to uh, Barbara Junior High School, and I had a music teacher by the name of Alfred Hickman, and he was the first man to really introduce me to playing jazz or telling me about the history of jazz, Duke Ellington. He knew Miles Davis. Miles Davis was his paper boy. He was from East St. Louis. And uh, I learned from him, and he took me. He kept bugging me, wanted me to go to jazz because I played all of the instruments. I played the cello, all the basses, the tuba. So I ended up going to Cass Tech High School, and I uh, had uh, classical lessons with Emmanuel Cortez, who was uh, from hung- Hungary. And uh, I was blessed to get scholarships from, believe it or not, bless his soul, O'Neill Swanson. 
sent me to Interlochen. Him and my father pay for two semesters for me to go to Interlochen. And I end up meeting um, Leonard Bernstein uh, from the, uh, you know, he was uh, the head of the World Youth Symphony. He was the conductor. And he liked me because I played old-fashioned with good strings. He said, I'm going to get the black kid to play. And he scared me to death because I'm walking down the road and he, I'm sitting there with this bass. And he said, you come on up here and play. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> so that was kind of my uh, introduction to classical music. And also, at that time, we had a professor up there who was the conductor of my orchestra. He was an African-American. His name was Andy White, Anderson White. And he ended up being the head of uh, the music department at Indiana State University, I believe. So that's how I got started with the uh, classical and the family and all of that. Ralph, that is such a tremendous history from your father who built a base for you from yeah. scratch, built it for you. And all of the people that you came across in just a short amount of time. Yeah. And it's amazing because I know that by the age of 16 or 17, you landed a spot with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. You were just a teenager. Tell me about that. Now, this is how it started. I was coming off the bus from Cass Tech High School, and I got off uh, before my stop at uh, Seminole Street, and I walked from Forrest down to Michael Henderson's house, the bass player. At that time, he was a bass player with Miles Davis, my friend Michael Henderson. And he said, man, I know these bad cats up in Connecticut. And they need a bass player. So, dig this. He has me play with this Czechoslovakian bass I had. This is a bass violin. He had me play over the phone for Sandy Tirano and the great Michael Narda Walden, who is the producer of Whitney Houston and Aretha. He wrote uh, Free Will Love and one of my dearest friends on the earth. And this is before my Narda got famous. This is before Michael got famous. So the next thing I knew, a week later, I got a plane ticket to go to Canaan, Connecticut, to go. We landed in Hartford. So I went to Canaan, Connecticut, and we were had we had a group. We were, believe it or not, the name of the group was the New McGuire Sisters. I don't know why we had that name, but so what? What happened? Narada was just getting into the three Chimoy phase. So John McLaughlin came up there. And he was, they kept saying, Ma Vishnu's coming. Ma Vishnu. I said, oh, Ma Vishnu? You mean John McLaughlin? <laughs> you know, he was coming up. So uh, he came up to jam with us. And I had this fretless precision bass. You don't see him a lot. I don't know what's up with the company, Fender. They, they're not making a lot of them. And they were really uh, decent basses at the time. Now, I'm going to tell you, I got to go a little retro. Now, I'm going retro. I got to put a pause in it. Okay, go ahead. I, I played the fretless Fender bass. The reason why I played the fretless Fender bass is because of the great James Jamerson at Motown. He introduced me to it. I'll never forget, as long as I live, we were at the Mozambique, and he was playing with Carolyn Franklin that night. He came down, and he says, I'm going to tell you something. They want to know why I can play the fretless bass. I said, what the hell is he talking about? So he was t explaining the technique, Yosef Abid's method from 1870. And he was showing me about the second finger and thumb and different positions. 
And I, I didn't know anything about a fretless electric bass. And I went into a 1972 Fender catalog because I had just got a brand new 72 Fender fretless bass. My mother got it from me, and I paid $15 a week to Auto Fortuna. So we found, I found this bass, and what I did, I ordered a fretless Fender net and put it on my red bass. And so when I went up to uh, Connecticut and played for John McLaughlin, he said, I'm going to call you to play bass. I want you to play bass with me. And I said, he ain't going to call this black kid from Detroit. And at the same time, Jocko Pistoria had auditioned too. He didn't have a fretless bass, but for some uh, strange reason, John McLaughlin went bananas over the fretless bass, the sound that I was getting. Now, dig this. So when I went home about four months later, I never forget it. It was on a it was on a January day and it was a snowstorm and it was no school. I got this call and John McLaughlin was on the phone. He said, Ralph, I don't, somebody wants you to play bass with them. And guess who was on the phone with John McLaughlin? Who? Carlos Santana. I almost needed the pen. Shaking, I was holding the phone like I was shaking a uh, uh, what was that? Uh, uh, what do you call those things? A shake, a tambourine, or not the tambourine, but the other thing, Morocco, Morocco. So anyway, about three months later, he sent me a plane ticket, and I was in New York working for Weiss and Maybach. That's Nathan Weiss and Ina Maybach. Nathan Weiss was the man who was instrumental in bringing the Beatles to America. And the next thing, uh, after we rehearsed for about Two weeks, I was at Air Studio in London recording with Sir George Martin, the Beatles producer at the age of 17. And that's how I got my big break. And you should have seen the look on my face. I wish I had a camera back then, an iPhone. When I got into my own private Daimler limousine. That is an amazing experience. So let me ask you this. With all of this going on, we still have to remember you were only 17 years old. How did you manage this responsibility? How did you stay grounded and not let it go to your head? How did you manage? Well, I had a father that still busts your side of your head if you like (laughs) And plus, I was focused. I was a fanatic about the bass, the instrument. I want to shift gears just a little bit because... At the height of your career, your career was in full swing. You stayed home to raise your family. You didn't go on on tour, but you stayed home. Talk about the the importance of that for you. Well, it was important because that's no life uh, for a man to raise his children. I didn't want anybody raising my kids. And I have no regret over that decision. And what happened, I had three wonderful kids. Uh, I have two sons that are very um, successful. You know, you know Alan, uh, he has his own business, and he's a mechanic, and he can do, he can take a car apart. He can do anything. You know, I'm so proud of him. And he went to Cass Tech. <laughs> My other boy, Evan, went to Cass Tech, and he works for Apple. My daughter, Angela, she's a graduate of Specs Howard. She's a videographer. And guess what? They're all assets to society. Because if you have any kind of spiritual faith, God put all of the blessings on hold for me, all of the endorsements that I endorse. So all of these things happen after I raise my children. 
And that makes me feel good as a, as a man that I sacrifice and I'm blessed to have wonderful children. And I think I know that your three kids appreciate you staying at home and being there for them. And you, as you already stated, know that you didn't miss anything. You still were able to flourish as a, as a musician and continue right. to grow, even staying gonna, at home. Right. And I'm going to tell you something funny about what I just said. Now, after all of that, when my kids were growing up, I when they got in their late teens, I got a chance to start getting out, and guess what? I had a dream come true. I'm looking at the picture right now. What's that? I end up playing the Jimi Hendrix Festival in 1995. How do you challenge yourself personally when you've accomplished so much? How do you stay ahead and on top and, and continue to learn and grow? I know that you do, but just Ooh, share. What a great question. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put one word on that. Well, two words. It's called Miles Davis. Miles was one of the biggest influences in music in my life. Even though we never toured, I was picked to play bass with Miles Davis. And here Michael Henderson comes again. He <laughs> called Miles and Miles. I got I to gotta tell you a story. Uh, Miles w- wanted me to play. He said, I want you to practice, and when we get together, it's going to be hip. So Miles came to dig this. Miles comes down to Bill Cosby's joint. It was 1976, and he came down there. I was playing with Curtis Fuller from Detroit, great trombonist who just passed this year, and uh, Marcus Belgrave, Harold McKinney. It was like a Detroit all-star group. We were at Bill Cosby's place. So he comes down. And he has on this purple velvet suit, like Prince. And he comes in there. I called Miles as soon as I got to New York. I said, Miles, I'm in New York. I'm in Cosby's joint. He said, happy too. Happy too. I'm coming. So Miles comes in, and he looks at me, and he points his finger. He says, hey, fat boy. (laughs) And and walks right out. Walks right out. And I almost started crying. I was playing him. I was like, Miles, come back, please. So the next day I called him. He he, he always picked up the phone. He Miles picked up the phone. He said, I had to go, but I just want you to know, you got the gig, you MF. I said, thanks, Miles. I wanted, <laughs> excuse me, I wanted to hear you play one note. You got a fat sound. You got the gig, fat boy. Click. And that was and it. Next, and that, that was it. He hung it. up. And next thing I know, I was rehearsing with Pete Cozy and Tooby and Reggie, uh, Reggie Lucas. We were all getting together, you know, working on the music. I was I spent a lot of time with Pete. I would go to Chicago on Earth with him. Then I got together with Miles in New York. And he was the biggest influence in me and Jazz because Jazz to me, I'm like Miles. It's social music. It's music of the time. It should never be categorized like classical music. You got to play it this way or this style. These there's some young guys that are playing in Detroit that's got a new kind of jazz. I don't know what the hell you want to call it, but it's something different, and I like it. It's good. So this is what Miles. This is the last thing I'll say about Miles. He told me he said, "I want you to find some little kids." I said, "Okay, Miles. I find some." And he says, I want you to see what they're playing. 
And it says, yeah, I want you to steal it. I said, okay. (laughs) And then he says, and then bring it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask in the mouth. But it's like fresh. You know, I like new concepts. You know, I'm always listening to new. I got a student I had at University of Michigan named Kaylin Amin. This guy's playing some bass. I don't know what the hell it is. Me and uh, Dennis Wilson, who's the head of the department up at UM, we sit there and watch him, and we were like looking at each other. They said, what is that he's playing? I don't know, but it sounds good. <laughs> he's got all these effects. And, oh, Mr. Armstrong, I get this new sequence and the stuff. His plan is, is out there, but it's good. It's different. So definitely staying connected to the youth, not only sharing your wisdom and knowledge with them, but also learning from them as well. Keeps, right. keeps you current right. and keeps you fresh. Exactly. And on your and toes. It keeps, and keeps the music fresh. Music should never, it should be different. Music should never, I never play. I play all genres of music. For people that... Uh, are ready to go to live performances, where can they find you? I am artist of residence at Baker's. Every Friday and Saturday I'm at Baker's. Baker's keyboard from 7 to 10. Since the pandemic happened, we can't fly anywhere. Our income, you know, I'm blessed that I'm old. And uh, our income has been, I feel really bad for a lot of musicians. Our income has been destroyed. Right now I should be teaching. I do teaching. None of that's happening. Nothing is really happening. I was supposed to be in Australia. We can't fly to Australia. We can't go to Germany. Everything's shut down. So Baker's has been really good enough to let me work there, to play the three hours I do a night. And it keeps me, you know, the stuff I play and the people are nice, you know. They treat me good at Baker's. The the, The owners are very nice to me. And for those that don't know the history of Baker's, tell Tell us a little bit about Baker's. Baker's Keyboard is the oldest jazz club in the world. 1934 is documented. Uh, It was even on Jeopardy. Alex Trebek talked about it, it being the oldest jazz club in the world. It is documented. And also, I got my start there at the age of, oh, God, that was one of the first places. I think I was 15, and my friend had the driver's license. He was 17. His name was Earl Clue. And Gene Dunlap. And now you're back at Baker's Keyboard Lounge on Fridays. Yeah, Friday pays the light bill. <laughs> we got to yeah. pay the bills. We have to pay the bills. Yeah, I know. People don't think musicians, we live in a hubble or something. I don't know. No, no, not at all. We Those bills have to get paid. Car yeah, notes. we live decent. Yeah. 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 Right. Who's in the band with you? I have a trio. I have Galen McKinney on drums, the daughter of Harold McKinney. And my road dog, Gerard Gibbs, on the keyboard. Me and Gerard have traveled all over this planet with James Carter. He is a magnificent piano player. We've been, we were in Tel Aviv together, Jerusalem, Bangkok, Singapore. I've been to every doggone country on the planet Earth, even to uh, New, Cal- New May, New Caledonia. Well, look, I know that you have been all over the world, but I'm so grateful that you still choose to make Detroit your home. It's and a good place to live. It's a, it's a lot of talent. It's something about it. so much talent coming up. Ralph, you are one of our legendary talents here in Detroit. 
I would like to say thank you so much for stopping by live with C Sharp. This was just an outstanding conversation. I know that our listener learned so much listening, uh, hearing from you. And so I'd just like to say thank you so much for spending time here on, on the show. And not only are you a legendary bassist here in Detroit and around the world, I'm proud to call you my cousin. That's right. Me too. And you're intellectual. You're just like all other ones. That's right. Intelligent. Intelligent. Big heads and intelligent. Full of brains. That's right. <laughs> Amen to that, cuz. Well, hopefully you'll come back on the show. Oh, anything. You know that. Anything you want. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Love you, cuz. Love Take you care. too. It's a pleasure.